I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. podcast listener just a quick reminder that livewire is a non-profit so if you love the show please visit our website at livewireradio.org and give what you can you might feel that a small amount doesn't really make a difference but that full bucket of water well it's full of drops thanks for listening Oh, man, nice picture. Dude, check out Mr. Carlson's hair plugs in this one. Looks like a forest after a bout of clear-cutting LOL. Hey, Gunderson, that was a pretty ballsy thing to say about Carlson's hair. What? How did you see that, Marla? Oh, You didn't click reply all on purpose? Reply all? No! It's happened to the best of us, folks. You think you're sending a snarky email to your buddy, but in fact you're sending it to the entire accounting department. That can't be good. How do I fix this? Well, it's easy. Just try, I take it all back. I take it all back? What'd I just say? Listen, some email programs have an undo feature that allows you to take back an email if you're fast enough. Well, I take it all back goes much, much further to prevent emails like these. Well, what do you do? I take it all back. I take it all back uses a patented time travel technology to go back when your douchey impulses were first starting, generally in your toddler years. No, no nap, no nap, it's stupid. Our encouragement, Pixies, TM, take the place of the absent mother or father that made you feel unworthy. It's okay, sweetie. You're as worthy of love and caring as anyone. And people get hair plugs because they want to feel more confident. They'll eventually fill in. Hey, who are you? Gotta go. And if it doesn't stick the first time, we'll go back as many times as needed until you are snark-free. Hey, Gunderson, nice glasses. Where'd you get them? Goobers are us? Hey, shut up. I like them. I think they make you look like Clark Kent, and he's a superhero on the inside. Oh, thanks. Who are you? Nobody. Just a gal who thinks those parachute pants are the bomb. Also, your mom's wrong. Your brother's not better than you. He's going to grow up to manage a caramel corn and listen to Winger. Whoa. That's awesome. See how easy that was? Okay, uh, I don't understand. Why don't you just go back in time to right before I sent the email? Well, anyway, where the heck were you during R&D, smarty pants? Uh, well, you know, I just thought... Listen, I take it all back really works. And for only $15,000 per email, you too can save yourself a lot of apologies. <sighs> Fine, I'm in. Just fix it already, okay? Hey, but tell me something. Where do these encouragement pixies come from, anyway? Oh, it's a magical place where we raise happy elves with nothing but positive things to say. And they're all amplified by microphones. It's, it's... From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, the city that stares at you all night from across the room, only to chicken out at the last second. It's Livewire, and now fresh from her second place finish of the international hosting competition in Madrid, 
Damn you, Tom Bergeron. Courtney Hameister! Thank you so much, everybody. We've got a great show tonight. There's a lot of memoir happening on tonight's show. Uh, we have a great storyteller, and she has a tale of a blind date gone horribly, horribly awry. Rowie Thorpe is here to tell us that story. And... We've also got the author of House of Sand and Fog is here with his brand new memoir, Townie. Andre Debuse is with us tonight. And our musical guest is one of the country's most acclaimed slide guitar and banjo players. Tony Furtado is here with his new album, Golden. But first, please meet the members of Faces for Radio Theater, Mr. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, the beautiful Trisha Ferguson, our siren of sound, Pat Janowski. And as usual, Scott Poole, the author of Hiding from Salesman, will take one single hour, the time it took Sir Walter Raleigh to air dry his coat of chivalry, to write a poem that encompasses all we've learned tonight. So welcome, Scott, and get writing. We can't do any of it without our house band, Jim Brunberg and the M Chops. Thank you, Jim Brunberg. Um, <laughs> so you have sort of an all-star band tonight. Can you introduce our audience to the all-stars? So these guys are here in a pinch to throw these things together for Ralph and Ralph's mom. Ralph's with his family in Iowa. And as an Iowa boy, I know that means a lot. So this all goes out to Ralph. Uh, and I want to introduce these guys because these are amazing musicians. In the very back is Matt Sheehy. He's an incredible songwriter. He also plays, plays in Ramona Falls. It's amazing. Playing guitar and bass. Um, right here at the drums is Mr. John Stewart. He plays uh, with Chris Robley in the Fair Heights and Rachel Taylor Brown, James Lowe, incredible drummer. And then uh, right here on my right is the, the coolest guy that Portland calls a native. He's a Grammy-winning producer and uh, one of the founding members of one of my favorite bands in the world that I just saw at the Rose Garden the other night, Los Lobos, Mr. Steve Berlin. On the side. It's pretty swanky, Jim. no. I don't know if you're trying to impress me or whatever, but it's, uh, Ralph. it's worked. It's, Ralph. it's worked. Thank you guys so much for joining us. It's really an honor to have you guys here tonight. As I said, uh, tonight we have two guests on the show who work in the area of memoir. Um, on the subject of memoir, I recently had the pleasure of interviewing memoirist Julie Powell. I don't know if you've read Julie. She wrote the book Julie and Julia about how she cooked her way through mastering the art of French cooking while struggling with her own... In the movie, it looked like a massive neurosis uh, and bumps along the way with her, with her saint of a husband, Eric. And the book was a huge success. It was turned into a movie with Meryl Streep as Julia Child and the perky and irrepressible Amy Adams playing the part of Julie. But Julie's second book, Cleaving, was a lot more difficult to get through. It was the story of a year and a half that she spent in a butcher shop learning the art of butchering while at the same time engaged in an extramarital affair. Right? Very different from the first book. <laughs> not, what you, not what you might expect. So before I interviewed her, I read the book, and I enjoyed it as much as the first, but then I started reading reviews online, and they seemed... People didn't just dislike the book. They actually seemed angry. And in my opinion, more angry than someone should be just over disliking a book. And I think it's because they felt lied to. See, the affair started, at least online, when she was writing the first book. But it never showed up in the first book. Sure, she was honest about the fact that she and Eric weren't perfect, although she painted him as pretty much per perfect, which she would later learn to regret, because I think a lot of her f readers took offense for Eric. Um, <laughs> but she just completely left out the part about the affair. And I think her readers, who know as much or more about her than they know about their own friends, I think that they felt betrayed by her. But it didn't bother me as I was reading it because I'm a huge fan of memoir and I know that memoirists are storytellers first. And the, that affair wasn't part of the story of the first book. It was part of the story of the second book. And if she had opened up that particular can of French cut green beans, it would have changed the first book completely, right? I feel like 
memoir writers grab details from one story and they put them in another and they take events or conversations and move them around like puzzle pieces so they'll fit better and they'll just make the story more cohesive and more importantly, more interesting, more fun to read. It's still the truth. It's just kind of stirred up a bit like truth soup, delicious truth soup. Like when you tell me a story, I know it's your story. It doesn't belong to other people who are in the story. When I want their story, I'll go to them, and their truth will be different. I guarantee it, because it belongs to them. I mean, we all know the truth is subjective, right? We watch The Bachelor. (laughs) And the truth can be shifted around a bit. Um, Some of us watch The Bachelor. Some of us are embarrassed about it. In any case, I, (laughs) I admire Julie Powell and any memoir writer who's willing to tell the ugly truth of their lives regardless of the consequences. Personally, I find truth soup delicious, but it might be an acquired taste like dark beer or Paul Giamatti. Um, in any case, we will be having some truth soup later, so you can look forward to that. Right now, however, you're going to want to meet our musical guest tonight. He won the Grand National Banjo Championship at age 19 and somehow continued to date all through college after that. Actually, no. <laughs> Actually, no. <laughs> um, he's also a slide guitar player. He's comfortable playing in bluegrass, blues, folk, pop, uh, with the likes of Alison Krauss, Kelly Joe Phelps, and Jerry Douglas. Please welcome Tony Furtado to Livewire.
Tony Furtado. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I read that you actually made your first banjo in sixth grade. You made it by yourself. How did that I come did. to happen? It's a funny little story. In sixth grade, we had to take an intro to music class. And uh, in that class, you had to do a report on a musical instrument and make the, the instrument with household items. I decided, well, I was making a lot of balsa wood airplanes at the time, so I figured I'd take a pie tin, uh, glue some paper to it, um, paint it with latex paint, and I figured if I put it in the oven on low temperature, it would stretch the paper. Uh -huh. And then I, I put a stick on it, rubber bands for frets, and I remembered seeing uh, Hee Haw at my grandparents' house. <laughs> I was like, that's a banjo. And so uh, I begged my parents for a real banjo for my 12th birthday, and they got me one. And from then on, I just I couldn't stop playing music. Some people don't know this about you, but you are also a sculptor. And mm -hmm. if they look at the cover of the new record, uh, Golden, there's one of your, your sculptures on there. Uh, one of my strangest. It's a two-headed rabbit. Right. And, and I, ha I was lucky enough to be able to visit your studio, and, and there's a lot of rabbits in there. There's you, a lot of rabbits. There's a rabbit theme, and some of them are sort of a rabbit-dinosaur hybrid. Oh, yeah. What, what is it about rabbits? That interests um, you. Well, I just uh, I find that I I try to put the rabbits in defensive positions so that they can defend defend themselves and and uh, you know I give them spikes or two heads to look both ways or they look like Greek heroes you know. Well, it, it's beautiful stuff. The record is golden, and you're gonna come back and play another song from yes, it I'd later in the show. Tony Furtado, everyone. <laughs> You're listening to Live Wire Radio with music, conversation, and comedy. We stimulate every part of your brain, including your subconscious, which tonight is going to treat you to another dream in which you're naked bridge partners with C. Everett Koop. Awkward. Coming up, storyteller Rowie Thorpe, author Andre Debuse III, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to Livewire. Hey, Tommy, you want to grab some lunch? Uh, oh, making a sandwich. <laughs> yes, I am. Looks good. Yes, it does. Is that uh, roast beef? You got it's there? Phoenician strong ox. Oh, uh, okay. Ancient cattle from what's now known as Syria, raised on the northern coast of Scotland called Bankfoot whose rich grasslands produce our most rare and robust meat, wars have begun over an ounce of this precious delight. Mm, okay. And uh, what's that there? Don't touch it. That is loklak. It wilts at the touch of more than 68 degrees. The Cambodian farmers who grow this sleep with their hands in ice chests so as not to disturb the precious bounty that is loklak. It is said it has healing properties. It is also said What's going that on? That sandwich is what's going on. Huh? Exactly. Look, Tom, I just... I put karashi on that. The most potent of all the oriental mustards. Oh, yes. Mixed under extreme conditions in an underground healing pod and aged inside the tender pouch of a teenaged kangaroo. <laughs> and I spread it there, under the cheese, under the Kluzer gold, and from Lapland, the Poyanpoika. I mixed the cheeses. Oh, yes, I did. The man who sold me this cheese bade me warning. He was called Tlingtuk, and the bazaar where he peddles his wares appears on no map. 
What he doesn't realize is that from the time of Zhenshkar, men of vision have mixed cheeses for a variety of reasons and to varying degrees of success. I have picked up where the mystics left off. I will complete my vision. I will prove Kling took a fool. The bloodlines of Germany and Sweden have never mixed successfully, but damn you, I will mix their cheeses. I will. Uh, look, I just stopped by your office to see if you want to grab some lunch, but clearly you got Everything some... Everything is clear to me now. Okay, so you're going to eat it? I'm sorry, eat what? The sandwich. You're going to eat that sandwich there? Or... Well, I want to. But at this point, I really don't know what this sandwich would do to me. Mm. I am but a pilgrim in a new world. Everything has changed now. This sandwich has evolved. So where'd you get all this stuff? Tom? Oh, here and there. Danielle has been most helpful. Most helpful indeed. I really don't know what you're talking about now. Danielle, my exchange student from Kinsasha. Here's his photograph. Looks like he's about 35 in that photo. That's right. He's foreign. He's white, too. <gasps> That's racist. I don't think it is, really. I found Danielle roaming the salt mounds at Salar de Uyuni. He promised to teach me all he knows, and as you can see, I've started wearing sandals. So is this a, a riddle? "'Twas tricky with the bread. As you can see, I took a risk and chose the Croatian fever bread. I'm working in primary colors here, the ancient wheat combined with flood water and enzymes from the dried sweat of blind children. I'm gonna leave. Leave? <laughs> no. For with the dagger of Fonfar, I will split this repast in twain. Together we shall feast. Prepare to know the face of God. Oh! It's terrible. Oh my god, it really does. Uh, yeah, it tastes like something grown in a clown's shoe. Oh my, this sandwich is a jerk. We still got time to hit Wendy's. Buy you a frosty? Deal. the past 20 years, Rowey Thorpe has been working in the world of nonprofit advocacy for organizations like Basic Rights Oregon, but that's not why she's here tonight. Last year, uh, Rowey put together a storytelling benefit for her current employer, Planned Parenthood Advocates of Oregon. The event was called It's Not Me, It's You, Stories from the Dark Side of Dating. Here to tell about a blind date gone awry and the tragedy of lost baked goods, please welcome Rowey Thorpe to Livewire. <laughs> The date got set up while I was playing in a poker game in the back of an old warehouse a couple of years ago. It was a blind date arranged by two other players, both women, a couple, whose last names I still don't know. Both last names and women are rare in the world of underground poker games, so at the time it seemed perfectly fine. But that might be because I had been single for two years two years, and was long overdue for something good to happen in the romance department. I might have been feeling just the weest bit lonely, so much so that I had turned down an invitation to a friend's 60th birthday party, an extravagant affair on the Oregon coast that was sure to have been memorable to go on this date. I told myself that I wasn't compromising my high standards, just to use a poker term, opening up my game by playing a wider range of hands. Which is how I found myself on a Saturday night looking for parking next to a single-wide trailer in Gresham. <laughs> in retrospect, maybe this should have given me pause. But I grew up in a series of trailers about the size of the one I was in front of, so for me it's not such a stretch, really. It has been a while since I've been to one, and I remember why I was so eager to leave. I pick up the pie I brought, and now I actually do pause, because while the rest of you might have said, oh, hell no, based on any of several things I've already mentioned, for me, the real deal breaker ought to have been that the fix-up was happening at a potluck. I hate the lesbian potluck tradition. I mean, if you're having people over, is it too much to serve some food? But I ignored that, too, and had brought with me the most gorgeous peach pie, 
still warm, with a crumbly topping covering fresh peaches that were bursting with juicy flavor, which seemed like a perfect representation of my current succulent state of being. <laughs> I arrive on the doorstep, as cute as I can make myself, holding the pie, and knock on the front door. I'm ready to meet this mystery woman, and in spite of some trepidation, I'm pretty excited. The door opens, my poker buddies pull me inside, the pie gets whisked away, and a clipboard is shoved into my hands. You need to sign in. <laughs> what? I look down, and the top sheet reads, Multnomah County Department of Corrections. <laughs> I get it, it's a funny icebreaker. Okay, I'm good at this. Do I have to use my real name? I'm already doing a mental riffle of appropriate jailhouse alter egos. My host gets stern. Of course, it has to be complete and accurate. I'm confused, but I fill it out, and feeling somewhat naked without my pie, which was some weird combo of security blanket and dowry, I scan my surroundings. The furniture is all overstuffed. Even the carpet looks puffy. Collectible figurines cover every surface. I focus on figuring out which one of the 10 or 12 people is my date, but everyone seems to be in a couple. And then I spot her heading my way. She's tall and slim, she's got short gray hair, but what she doesn't have is teeth. <laughs> Front teeth, on either the top or the bottom. No teeth. I smile, not to show off or anything. <laughs> we, we talk for a few minutes, but the conversation goes nowhere. Maybe because all I can think is, oh my God, no teeth. <laughs> and right about then, there's a loud, awful sound, like a gigantic amplified fax machine, and everyone stops talking. For some reason, they are staring at my date. After a paralyzing long moment, she spins around without a word and runs into a corner of the living room where she falls to her knees in front of a large plastic box with lots of cords coming out of it. In most living rooms, this would be the stereo system, but not here. She leans forward and recites a series of words and numbers into the box, and as she does this, the leg of her jeans slides up, and I see that there is a black plastic transmitter strapped to her ankle, and suddenly I get it. My date is under house arrest. <laughs> My first thoughts are not the questions that everyone asks when I tell them this story. I'm not trying to figure out what her crime was, or why it was my poker buddy's trailer she was confined to, or whether she had teeth at the beginning of this phase of her life. I'm thinking, why did someone think she was the right person for me? Is there something about me that reads as perfect for the recently incarcerated? Back to the scene in front of me, she's on her knees. Everyone's watching as she begins to respond to a series of voice prompts that seem to be some sort of breathalyzer test. The only one I remember is Ohio. 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 Because I'm from Ohio. And wow, finally something in common. It seems like she's down on the floor forever, saying the words and waiting for the prompt, and I'm trying to use my best poker face and not look anyone in the eye, and at the same time, scan the room for the pie amidst all the plastic containers of three bean salad. I've got to get out of here, and I want to find that pie and take it with me. I'm planning to eat it with my hands all the way home. I can't see it. I can't see it, and I need a moment alone, so I back slowly into the hall and sidestep into a dark, narrow bathroom where I try to take some deep, calming breaths, but a Spring Meadow plug-in air freshener makes that impossible, so I just try to concentrate on what to do with the hand I've been dealt. Suddenly, with a rush of hope, I remember the birthday party at the coast that I turned down and that my friends are there, and so I dig in my purse for my cell phone and call them and whisper, it's Rowie, are you at the party? I could come right now, is there time? My friend says, 
Oh, honey, I'm sorry. It's too late. But it's just beautiful. We're right on the beach eating lobster and drinking champagne. And listen, there's a live string quartet. And then he holds his phone out, and I can hear both the music and the ocean. At this point, all that's left is to try to figure out a strategy to get the pie and get out. <laughs> After considerable thought, I decide the best plan is just to walk out the door. I mean, it's not like she can follow me, right? <laughs> and when I weigh the rudeness of not thanking my hosts with the rudeness of their failing to mention that the blind date was under arrest, I feel okay. And so I just go up to her and say, okay then, it's been great meeting you, bye now. And when she says, wait, will I see you again? I give her my biggest toothy smile and say, no, but I wish you the very best of luck and hit the road. And the pie, in the end, I couldn't find it. And so I save myself and sacrifice my pie because every gambler needs to know when to walk away and when to run. That was Roey Thorpe, and you're listening to Livewire. The easiest way to never miss a show? Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. So, hey, guy who's been camping out on my lawn waiting for me to reenact the shows, take heed. I swear this is easier for both of us. Get more information on subscribing to our podcast at livewireradio.org. Hi, welcome. Is this your first visit with us? Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, welcome. Uh, Neil Diamond's Forever in Blue Jeans Family Restaurant and Fish House has a couple classic specials tonight. The Sweet Caroline uh, Baby Back Ribs, a Longfellow Serenade Marinade Strip Steak with Song Sung Blue Cheese Crumbles, and we are featuring as our fish selection the Brother Loves Traveling Salvation Soul, which is locally caught and served on a bed of wild rice and the crackling rosy halibut filet. Mm. The red, red wine tonight is a Cabernet. And, okay, I'll just give you a few minutes to decide. Thanks. Can we get a couple of waters to oh, start? Sure thing. Great. So, uh, anything sound good? I don't know. What is a Jonathan Livingston Seagull? Uh, okay, it says here, it's a dozen spicy buffalo-style wings based on the classic homily about self-perfection. Huh. Have you ever been here before? Oh, no, I, I don't really come to Beaverton that often. Well, okay. <laughs> Neither do I, just, you know, it sounded like fun, I guess. Um, how long have you known Shelly? Oh, uh, we've worked together for about four years now. How about you? Uh, ten. We met in college, and uh, her boyfriend oh. was my roommate junior year. Oh, has she ever set you up on a blind date before? Never. <laughs> but I've got to say, I am not having a bad time. I am not having a bad time either. <laughs> I'm not sure about this place, though. I mean, I, I don't know if I want to eat something called the Jazz Singer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not that bad. I'm dying to know what a two-bit man-child tastes like. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, well, irregardless, next time I get to choose the restaurant. Absolutely. Uh, you know... No, no, just no. It's what? No, you know, it's just uh, what? Tell me. Irregardless, isn't actually a word. So. Um. Well, I mean, sure it is. It's no, it's it's not. It's not a word. Well, of course it is. I've heard it before. Well, that doesn't make it a word, does it? Uh, it's just. Not a word, so... Huh, that's yeah. um, weird. I really didn't know that. Not a big deal. I, uh, you know, I probably shouldn't have, have mentioned it in the no, first place. No, no, I mean, why, why shouldn't you? It's a... <laughs> oh, wow. Um, you know, I can't decide between the Desiree and the You Don't Bring Me Flowers. <laughs> they both look really, really good. Yeah, I've never seen a three-meat salad on a menu before. Okay, I hate to bring it up again, but uh, I just want to hammer this home. Irregardless, not a word. So, uh, you know, I want you to believe me that it's not... Of course it is a word. It's, <sighs> it's well known. It means showing no regard. No, no, it doesn't. Regardless means showing no regard, less regard. Irregardless would mean the opposite of that. Hmm. You know what? Never mind. 
it's not a big deal. I agree, not a big deal. Okay, never mind, not a word either, so... Uh, what, are you going to monitor everything I say? I, I'm not monitoring you. Okay, right? have you two made up your minds? Would you have a few more minutes, please? Oh, no problem. Hey, if you're in a hearty mood, might I suggest the girl you'll be a woman soon? It's highly recommended. Goes great with cherry cherry. We'll think about it. Are you, are you getting those waters? I am, I said. What? Look, you know, I'm not stupid. I work at an office. I have a person under me. Right now? <laughs> That's not funny. I'm not a total moron. No, I, I don't think you're a total moron. You know what You know what I used to say? I used to say ATM machines. Can you believe that? I, I don't get it. I mean, that's what they're called, ATM machines. No, they're not. Yes, yes, they are. ATM means automatic teller machines, so you'd be saying automatic teller machine machines. It's the same thing with PIN number, but, you know, I won't even get into that. What is your problem? I don't have a problem. You're, you're a know-it-all. Oh, man, Shelly said you were sweet and had a good sense of humor and all that. No, look, I, I don't know why I do this. I, I promise this is the most annoying thing I do, and I will get it under control, I promise. You know, everyone says never mind. Everyone. It means forget it. No, it doesn't mean forget it. It literally means don't listen to me. And when you say words that are not words, people won't listen to you. I hate Neil Diamond. <sighs> And I was really looking forward to the crackling, rosy halibut, but goodbye. Oh, come on, Allison. Little Ain't no surprise. Pour me some drinks and I'll tell you some lies. Uh, will the lady be coming back? No, I'll have the Love on the Rock stew, though. Thanks. Our next guest has held some interesting jobs. He was a halfway house counselor. He was assistant to a PI and a bounty hunter. And he claims he never really wanted to be a writer like his father, Andre DeBuse. But it seems it was inevitable. He started writing fiction at 22. And his novel, The House of Sand and Fog, was nominated for the National Book Award and was the basis for an Academy Award-nominated film and a number one New York Times best-selling book. After three novels and a book of short stories, he's now taken on memoir with the brutal and beautiful Townie about growing up poor in Haverhill, Massachusetts, street fighting, boxing, and reconciling with his father. Please welcome New York Times bestselling author Andre Debuse III. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Andre. Thanks for having me. I just have to say after that last skit, in my town where I'm from, we say disirregardless. <laughs> wow. We do. I don't even, I can't even do the math on that one. I guess it means regardless. Yeah, I think right? it comes back out again. Exactly. Yeah. It totally works. Um, so as I said in your intro, you've said that you never really wanted to be a writer, and yet it happened. Was there a moment in your life when you realized, oh, I'm a writer, Damn. It's happened. Yeah, it happened by accident. I was actually, um, I now write about in this new book, Townie, I was training as a boxer, and, and my way of expressing myself was, was fist from where I grew up. And, and one night, instead of going off to the gym, I actually sat down and brewed tea and started to write a scene, and I still don't know why I did that. And, and it got me off a really dangerous road, and I began to express myself with words instead of fists, and, and I haven't stopped. And, um, but I didn't call myself a writer for years. I mean, all I knew was that it, when, if I didn't write, I didn't feel like myself. And that's the only reason I've done it, and I feel lucky to have that. So, so you've, written, um, you've written novels, you've written short stories. Why a memoir now? Um, it came from an essay, uh, and the essay came from, from this image from my life. My brother and I were building my house. Uh, he designed it. He and I and a buddy built it. And uh, my brother's 40 years old, and he's smoking a cigarette. And, he, and I had two guys working on the house that day who were talking baseball. And my brother, who was 41, said, so what? There's an American League and a National League? I said, yeah, what's that about? He says, I don't know. I said, I don't know either. Somehow we missed baseball. Somehow we fell through the sports cracks. 
Wow, know, amazingly where you live. Yeah, especially where we live. So, you know, the, and now I'm a big sports fan because of my sons are baseball players. And so the essay, the, you know, the question fueling the essay was, how did I miss baseball? And what came was this 500-page accidental memoir of what I was doing, which was getting bullied until I snapped and then becoming a violent young man and until writing saved me from it all. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to uh, have you read a little excerpt from it, if you, if you would. Yeah, I'll read something brief. How about Washington Street lay behind concrete flood walls and ran parallel to the Merrimack River from Railroad Square all the way to the Basilier Bridge. In the winter of 1977, it was a street of closed shops, some of their display windows covered with brown paper, squares of masking tape sticking to the glass. Other businesses had nothing covering their front windows, and beyond them lay one big dusty room. Against the wall would be shelves and a bare countertop holding a brass cash register, its drawer open and empty. The old Woolworths building was closed up and locked. But farther down the street was Mitchell's, which was still operating and where, when she could, Mom would put clothes on layaway for us. Farther west was Barrett's. Through the windows, I'd see men in shirts and ties selling clothes to men who wore ties, too. I rarely saw men like that and assumed they must live across the river in Bradford. And Washington Street was where the bars were, the Lido, the Tap, the Chit Chat Lounge, they were on the street level of mill buildings, darkened, nearly windowless caves filled with men and women drinking and smoking, their cigarette smoke swirling through the dim lights behind the bar. There'd be music playing on the jukebox, Frank Sinatra and Sonny and Cher, Elton John, Tom Jones and Johnny Paycheck. Near the register were jars of pickled eggs, a rack of potato chips and Slim Jims, wooden booths built into the walls, a few scattered cocktail tables, most of their bubbled from mica tops spotted with cigarette burns. Throughout downtown, along the narrow streets and alleys between the mills, there were many other bars like this, Ray and Arlene's, Smitty's, the 104 Club. There were stories of knifings or, shoot or shootings in these places, of brawls with guys getting their teeth knocked out, their noses broken, their jaws splintered and having to be wired shut. The same names kept coming up, too. The Murphy Boys, the Finns, the Duffies, John and Jake Cadell, the Wallaces. Gangs of brothers who drank together down on Washington Street then got into fights, sometimes with each other. And there were men known for just that one thing, brawling and almost always coming out on top. Jackie Wright, Paul Brooks, Ray Duffy, Bobby Twist, and Darrell Woods. Others, too. They'd work all week for the city repairing roads or over at Western Electric in Andover assembling circuit boards or on a construction crew or in one of the quarter-running mills downtown stamping shoe soles. Then on Friday and Saturday nights, they'd fold their drinking money into the front pocket of their jeans, pull on their leather jacket, and hit Washington Street. So, that was a great depiction of your world. What, what had happened was at 10 years old, your father left, your mother, and you guys uh, lived in a, a one-bedroom apartment? Uh, we lived in a bunch of small, cheap-rented places. And yeah. your father was a professor, and um, you would go to visit him, and when he became an author, you would play with the, the Vonnegut kids. But you also lived in this other world. How did you navigate... This, you, you were in this very violent world at school. How did yeah. you navigate those two worlds? Well, you know, it was a divorce in the 70s where there was no split custody. We never spent the night at his apartment. And we just saw him once a week for a couple of hours on Sunday. And so I really didn't navigate it for a while. And I only got to really know my father's life when I went to the college where he taught. And it was this green walled-in campus of, of kids from around the country, most of them middle or upper middle class kids. And that's when I realized I was really kind of a blue-collar townie kid from the mill town across the river. But my father was this beautiful writer and professor. And I really I had a house full of books, but in a neighborhood where no one had books. My best friend, Cleary, who died young, uh, he just had an illustrated Bible on his you know, uh, coffee table at his house. Um, it was a split from which I still haven't gotten out of. And I, I mean, I still don't feel like, you know, I'm a college-educated author, professor, but I really feel like the working class guys down at the bar, but I'm not them either. Right. So I'm in this netherworld, and that's okay. Yeah. 
and your father really wanted you to be a writer, and it seems like in some ways, later on in his life, you really kind of healed your relationship with him. Yeah. How, did, how did you find a peace with that relationship? Because there had to have been a lot of underlying issues. You know, I think most fathers and sons, most mothers and daughters, most parent-children relationships are fraught with shadow and pain and misunderstanding. And, um, you know, the fact that we both wrote helped a lot, but we also ran a lot together before we got crippled. We lifted weights together. We drank together. Uh, He was really more like um, an eccentric uncle, and it was a lot of fun. Um, But ultimately, once I became a father, I began to forgive his flaws the way the way we tend to do when it's our turn right right mm-hmm. right <laughs> um just one last question you've taught writing at harvard tufts emerson now the university of massachusetts lowell um what have you learned about your own writing and in, in teaching others that you wouldn't have known otherwise well i you know what there's a wonderful essay by the poet um william stafford he said the poet must put him or herself into a state of openness or receptivity before writing poems and he defined receptivity as one a willingness to accept anything that comes no matter what it is and two a willingness to fail and what I've discovered in my writing teaching life is that I can teach concrete specific language as a tool and and active verbs and and all these tools of writing to somebody but it's really hard to teach someone to be receptive and open and willing to accept anything that comes and a willingness to fail that would be a whole longer show right there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so what's your current project right now? I'm working on a screenplay, and um, I don't know how to write a screenplay, and um, I'm scared to death of it because I have no idea how to write a screenplay, and maybe I should end with an ancient Chinese line that gives me courage. If the mad dog comes at you, whistle for him. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, it was a pleasure having you here. The book is Townie. It's Andre Dubuse III. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. And now it's time for the... Audience Haiku! We have asked our audience to expound on three subjects in the form of haiku. Humble pie, malapropisms, and townies. Faces for Radio Theater have chosen their favorites and will now read them with the help of Jim Brunberg. Tonight's haiku is, as always, brought to you by the New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring Mighty Arrow Pale Ale, named for the brewery's beloved dog, Arrow. It'll make you want to sit, speak, and rub that belly. And if you do it right, hair of the dog needn't be an issue. Thanks, New Belgium. And now, audience haiku. Okay, you guys. Can I get some music to cook by? I know. Pumpkin, chocolate, cream, apple, strawberry, rhubarb. Nope, out of humble. Thanks, guys. That's the Felder family. Thanks, Trisha. Looks like I got a malapropism here. Uh, All-star band, can I get some uh, Hitchcockian Bernard Herrmann tense? Yeah. Don't say anything. I can tell what you're thinking. Because I'm psychotic. (laughs) Thank you, Stephanie. Welcome to the show. (laughs) And, uh, guys, could I have something to read by? To read by? Read by. How exciting. (laughs) I have long expired to be a famous writer. Thesaurus my ass. (laughs) Thank you, Sharon. And now please welcome from the audience one of you to read his very own haiku. Please welcome Paul. Paul. 
All right, can I get something uh, a little bit smug and self-important? <laughs> That's all Jim does. These are the worst clues about music. Okay. And a little pensive. <laughs> Sadly, humble pie is not as good as it sounds till your spouse eats it. true. It's true. Thank you, Paul. That was a fantastic job, everybody. On the audience haiku. You're listening to Live Wire. It's music, conversation, and comedy for the new millennium. Well, new-ish millennium. I mean, millenniums are long, so this one's just a baby. Not even a baby, really. It's a zygote, probably. Like, it's Cells are still dividing or something or whatever. Did I say millenniums? I think I meant millennia. Yeah, I feel like I came out here to talk about something important. Oh, uh, if you live uh, anywhere near Portland, please come to our seventh anniversary show at the Portland Art Museum on April 15th. Guests include actor Kyle McLaughlin, filmmaker Todd Haynes, and others. That's April 15th at the Portland Art Museum. Visit livewireradio.org for details and tickets. You're listening to Livewire Radio, offering up comedy, music, and conversation in deliciously digestible bursts. We'll be right back after this short break. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Tony Furtado. Oh, 
Hurtado. And now, as promised, he has been working very hard for the last 56 minutes to help us digest all that's happened in the last hour. Please welcome back poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I got a desperate call the other day from a sandwich. I instantly suspected that someone had left their cell phone next to a pastrami on rye while they went to the restroom. It was the only explanation of such a random panicked call from a salted cured meat. Why didn't you call 911, I asked. If you were a cop, would you save a sandwich? I said, you have a point, Mr. Sandwich. What kind of sandwich are you? What does that matter? Like if I'm bologna on white bread, you're not going to save me? I was about to hang up, but I sympathized with the sandwich. (laughs) I've almost been eaten by several elements of the world, too. The sandwich went on. You've got to save me. I can't be eaten by a greasy Wall Street guy who probably only sees his family once a week. Why can't I be eaten by someone like Tony Furtado? Isn't his music like comfort food? Doesn't it just roll along on a beautiful breeze, the kind you'd find on a country road? You're a sandwich. How do you know about what it's like to walk down a country road or what it is to make your own banjo? The sandwich said, don't you realize that a sandwich is a coming together, a crossroads, if you will, a coming together of friends, much like rock and roll was a combination of blues, jazz, and country. I didn't know what to say to make the sandwich feel any better. The sandwich was making so many brilliant observations. (laughs) So I said, maybe he doesn't have any teeth. What? The sandwich said, um, throw your voice, yell, look, Neil Diamond, and he's drunk, and his pants are off. (laughs) Oh my God, I'm dead meat, said the sandwich. (laughs) Where are you at? I'll come and save you, I said. The deli on 6th, hurry. It was crazy, I never saved sandwiches. I felt so alive as I drove to the deli. When I got there, the sandwich was still alone, its owner not back from the bathroom. There was going to be a fight. So I knew there was only one thing I could do. I ripped off my shirt. I took the generous, delicious slices of pastrami and lined my pectoral and bicep muscles. The salt of my muscles made my skin tingle. I put my shirt back on to complete the ruse. I was ripped. I learned tonight that I am no longer a victim. I am Captain Kick-Ass Pastrami. Oh my God, the sandwich said, there is no devil. There is only God and he's drunk. Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thanks so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Roey Thorpe, Andre Debuse III, and Tony Furtado. The Mutton Chops are Jim Brumberg, Steve Berlin, John Stewart, and Matt Sheehy. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company and Whole Foods Market. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners such as you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. Our senior producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brumberg. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Sean McGrath, and Scott Poole, and performers Tyler Hughes, Trisha Ferguson, and Siren of Sound, Pachinowski. Our guest writers this week are Jason Rouse and Timmy Williams. Guest performer was Andrew Harris. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. 
Uh, thank you so much. If you've left a review and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. <laughs>